But for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, uh, we're in the middle of a series called Who is God? And throughout the last few weeks, and from now till Thanksgiving, we're going to be exploring this topic, this understanding, from this perspective. Most of us have narratives about who God is, stories that we know or we think we know about God. But oftentimes, they don't match up with the stories that Jesus told us. And since we believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God that is a part of the Trinity, then, then God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we sang a little earlier, then we believe that when Jesus tells us a story about God, about His heavenly Father, then that story should be the, the trellis, if you would, against which all of our stories are pressed against and grown so that we begin to understand who God revealed Himself to be in Jesus Christ. And, and so we're exploring some of those bad narratives. And, and what we've learned in the good narratives is that we've learned that God is good. Uh, we, we've learned that, that God is generous. Uh, we, we've learned that, that God is trustworthy. And, and last week, we, we looked at and understood that God is actually loving. Now, this loving issue, I mean, the, the concept that God is love, there's a little bit of a, how should I say, a cultural dynamic we need to explore. You see, when we think about love, we think about, I love you, all right? We, we just, I mean, it's like emotions, evocative, I love whatever it is you're talking about, the person, the thing. And, and, and for us, you know, to not love is to, is to be, I don't know, unemotional or have negative emotions. And yet the biblical term for love, the one that, that is held up for us is there are several Greek terms that are used for love, but, but the one that is held up primarily by John, the disciple, in the teaching of Jesus is the term agape. Now, you may have heard about agape. I mean, if you've been around Christian bookstores, if there are any that still exist, uh, if, you, if you've been around church, um, if, you, if you listen to Christian radio, uh, any of that stuff, you, you, may have, you may have heard about the term agape. And, you know, for many of us, we think we know what it means, and that, that, that it's a love that puts the other person first, it cares more about the other person than it cares about themselves, and so that if you love with an agape love, you are, you're putting the other person first. But, but actually, the, the term is more than that. Uh, the, the term agape is more than just like putting someone else first. It's, it's literally loving them in such a way that, that they that, that, that what you're doing for them, what you're doing with them, the way you're relating to them is for their best life. It, it's not their best life like that they want the best life. It's like, oh, here's the life I want and I want to have it. No, no, that's, that's, that's not what agape is about. What agape is about is, is about, about someone loving you so much that they know what is better for you and they, they lead you, they, they share life with you in, in a way that lets you know that you can trust them, their heart is good, and they, they love you in such a way that, that out of that goodness and out of that trust, their generosity flows into your life. But, but it's this concept of knowing what's, what's better for you. Uh, 
as we, if you're in one of our, our life groups, our small groups that are studying along this path with us on the Who is God series, you're using a, a book that we've recommended called The Good and Beautiful God by an author named Dr. James Bryan Smith. And Dr. Smith um, is a, a wonderful teacher, um, pastor at Friends University out in Kansas. And, uh, and, and Jim has been here with us a time or two, a couple of times actually, to share this type of discipleship material. And, and I want to say to you that, that even if you're with us online, uh, we want to we try to help you understand what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus. And, and this particular work, The Good and Beautiful God, is a, is a wonderful way. I'm actually doing a group here on Wednesday nights at 6.30 in this room. Um, we're about halfway through. You're welcome to join us even that far in. But, but in the book, The Good and Beautiful God, James tells a story that, quite honestly, all of us who preach, who teach uh, publicly, have encountered this same kind of story. You see, there's a difference in, in someone who's a pastor like me, who every week um, we gather together here, and, and when you come together, I mean, every week there are different people here, but a lot of you are the same people, all right? And I'm preaching from the same Bible, all right? And so I'm preaching the story, the narrative of God. You're coming to hear the narrative of God. And so every week, you expect me to have something different for you. Not, I mean, if I just got up every Sunday and said the same thing every Sunday, it would be a little bit, well, a lot of you would run for the exit. Let's just be real honest, okay? But, but I, I have some friends, you know, who are, who they're, they're conference leaders or like Dr. Smith, they're professors and they go out and they speak at churches and they, and they share, but they have like five sermons, right? And, and, they, and they preach the same five sermons, but the crowd changes, the audience changes, they're in different locations. I tease my professor friends that, you know, they, they, they research a topic, they're assigned a course, now they keep their research fresh, and I believe in every one of them. One of my sons is a college professor, I, I understand, but you know what, that, that curriculum is the same curriculum, they're just adding to it, and they get a new bunch of students every week. Now, when you've been the pastor of the same church for 25 years, some of you have heard me ad nauseum. You've heard me time after time. In fact, I had a 16-year-old kid say to me one time uh, on a Wednesday night, there was a group of kids here and, for our youth ministry, and, and he was talking to his buddies and talking to me, and he says, you know what? My dad keeps a record of every time you tell the same story again. And I looked at him and I said, really? I said, would you give your dad a message for me? He said, sure, what? I said, would you tell your dad that if he'll start living out the truth of the stories I'm telling him, I'll start telling new stories. Oh, he got quiet, all right? Like cha-ching, all right? But, but I tell you that because in this book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith tells the story of going back to a church he had spoken at five years earlier. And sharing the same message that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God is generous, that God is loving. And, and as he's sharing that message, he's feeling a little bit guilty, but, he, but that's what they've asked him to do is to share the same message. They've got a new group of people coming together to learn this material. And so as he's sharing that message and sharing that stuff, you know, he's got this angst inside of him. And then after the service, uh, two, well, a lot of people came up, but two people were, were coming up to talk to him and one as one of them was talking with him, was a, a police officer who, who said to him with tears running down his, his face, I, you preached that same message five years ago. 
And Jim goes, you know, I, I was kind of like anxious about it already. I said, sir, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a college professor. I've kind of got one theme. This is what I do. And, and, the, and the, the man said, oh, no, you don't understand. He said, I, I, this is how old the story is. I bought the CD. Some of you are like, what is a CD? All right. He said, but I bought the CD, and I put it in my car, and I played it over and over again. And, and you have to know, I'd never heard of a God who was good and gracious and loving and trustworthy. And your, and, and your message just changed my life. And I just had to come up and say, thank you for sharing it again. Jim's like, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. This is all right. He said, while well, the police officer's talking to him, there's a, a young lady who's waiting over kind of on the fringe. And, and when the police officer leaves, she comes up and she says, oh, Dr. Smith, I just want to tell you. I want to tell you how wonderful. I've never heard you before. I've never heard this message before. I'm, I'm one of those people that you talked about that God is angry and vengeful, and, and, and that's all I've ever been taught. In fact, in fact, this message has freed me so much. I just had to come up and tell you that because, you see, my boyfriend and I have been sharing an apartment, and we've been living together, and we've been having sex together, and his family knows that, and, and my friends know that, and my, my church that I grew up in, they're telling me that that's sinful and that's wrong, and, and you just told me that God loves me, and he's wanting me to enjoy all of this and I just want to say thank you for setting me free so I can go and enjoy my life and Jim Smith's like I'm in trouble because that wasn't what I was trying to say and so this morning what I want to say to you is if over the last few weeks that we've been talking about the fact that God is good and God is trustworthy and and God is generous and God is loving somehow you've you've kind of picked up on the idea that there are no rules to this that there are that there's no set of boundaries to this that, the, that all God is saying is that God is just good and he loves you. No, no, see, see that's, we don't want to be the people Henry Cloud was talking about. We, we mentioned a few weeks ago that, you know, that come to church and say, here's what you hear. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. We don't want to be there. But in this process of understanding that God is good, he delights in us, and we can trust him, we have to know that he, he agape loves us. And that because he agape loves us, he knows more than we know, and he sets some boundaries, some, some guardrails, if you would. My wife, Becky, is from St. Louis, and her mother will be 91 years old this Christmas Eve. She's a Christmas Eve baby, and we love her, and we go home to see her periodically. In fact, she listens every Sunday to the online stream, and I'm like, be careful what you say, all right? Your mother-in-law is listening, all right? And as I'm, as I'm talking this morning, I, 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 I'm telling you because, about her because when we go home, there's a, there's a place on the interstate. Actually, it's, it's the loop around St. Louis on the north side on 270. It crosses the Mississippi River. And we've gone over that bridge for decades going home to see, going home to see my mother-in-law and our family. And, and when we go there, every time, we, 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 we both, Becky and I both have this this anxiety about big, long bridges. Hers comes from when she was a kid, and they were on the Sunshine Skyway down in Florida, and a big storm came up, and she was a little girl, and it just scared her to death. Mine comes from the fact that my family's from Kentucky, and have you ever been on a bridge in Kentucky? I mean, some of those are scary. I mean, they creak and crawl and do all of that, and I'm like, oh, and I, I grew up down there. And, and we both have anxiety, and when we go across that, that, that loop, that interstate loop on 270, it's a big strong bridge except for one area if you're going west on 270 north of st louis from illinois into missouri 
You're going to come upon, unless they fixed it in the last eight weeks, you're going to come across a place where a huge semi-truck, we assume, because of the size of the gap, went over the guardrail and cleaned out the guardrail. And so you can imagine if you've got anxiety, like Becky and I do about big bridges, and you're driving in the right-hand lane, and you've got the guardrail. And over that guardrail, there's a huge drop. I mean, it's probably 50, 75 feet down to the ground. It's the area that when the Mississippi River floods, it floods up into that area. So sometimes there's water there, and sometimes there's not water there, but it doesn't matter. There's not a guardrail there. And I have to tell you, when I go driving past that, that spot, every time I know it's there, I've seen it dozens and dozens of times, and I've experienced it every time. I'm driving along within the guardrails, everything's fine, everybody's in their lane. Inevitably, the world's biggest semi-truck gets in my left-hand lane, and I'm in my little car, and we come up on that place where the guardrails are gone. And my heart jumps up in my throat and the anxiety level goes through the roof. And I'm like, ah, am I going to live? And what I want you to know is this. Your heavenly father, the God of Jesus, is a God who has put guardrails in place for your life. They're not rules and restrictions in order to rob you of something. No, no, they're guardrails. And those guardrails come because he agape loves you. And those guardrails are there because he is a holy and a whole God. Holy is spelled H-O-L-Y. Holy is spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y. And those are important things to know. Because the only way you get to holy, H-O-L-Y, is to be whole or to be holy. W-H-O-L-Y or W-H-O-L-E. You see, in, in, order to be, in order to be holy, you got to be whole. And you've got to know the guardrails. And so, so when we understand that God is good and he delights in us and we can trust him, it's not carte blanche. It's not, it's not this, this free pass to do whatever we want to do because we think love is all about emotion. No, no, no. Lo love is about agape. It's about doing what's best. Because you see, the God of Jesus, the God of Jesus who is good, the God of Jesus who is generous. The God of Jesus who is, who is trustworthy. The God of Jesus who is love. He is not a pushover. He's not just a God that we've created in order to salve our conscience. The God that we've created in order to do what we want to do and give us permission to do it and then we worship him. No, 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 no. He's a God who knows what's best for us, makes guardrails, guidelines parameters, boundaries, whatever you want to call them, so that we can live the best life he designed for us. But we don't know what that best life is. And that's why Jesus came to let us know what the best life is. Many of us know the story in John chapter 3 of a guy named Nicodemus who came to see Jesus in the middle of the night to ask Jesus about how he could have eternal life. What does it mean to, to actually have eternal life? It's in that dialogue that Jesus says, hey, you know what? You need to be born again. You need to have a rebirth in your life. And, and Nicodemus says, what do you mean be born again? I mean, I'm a grown man. Am I supposed to like go back into my mother's womb? What kind of weird stuff is this? And, and Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand it. It's, it's about the spirit, your spirit being reborn in you. And it's in that third chapter of John 
that that very famous verse that many of you can quote, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's in that, that conversation that that statement comes out. And for many of us, that's all we know about John chapter 3. But there's something more in John chapter 3. And it gives us a clue into how this God of Jesus is not a pushover. It's a statement that comes from, from John the Baptist. Because you see, as John the disciple writes the story and tells about the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, he then dovetails that into a story that the disciples of, the disciples of John the Baptist saw that the disciples of Jesus were now baptizing people and that crowds were going to see Jesus. And, and so they came, to, they came to him and they said, hey, listen, listen, John, uh, people are leaving you to go to see Jesus. And, and, and he says, you know what? Said, um, said, I told you all that was going to happen. I told you that, that I'm not the Messiah and the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to tie the laces on his shoes and that I must decrease and he must increase. But, but you need to know why that's true. You need to know that, that, that he is from a different place, that he has a different agenda, that he knows more than you know. And he says it like this. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 31 and following. It's on the screens for you. He who comes from above, that would be Jesus, is above all things. He who is of the earth, uh, that would be us, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven, that would be Jesus, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one here on earth receives his testimony. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal, I love that, sets his seal to this. In, in other words, he embraces this, he, he, he um, applies this to his life, that God is true. For the one whom God sent, that would be Jesus utters the words of God, for Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, Pastor, you've told us that God is not angry, vindictive, sitting in heaven waiting for us to fail. And now suddenly you're saying, John the Baptist is saying, that the wrath of God remains on the people who don't embrace what Jesus is giving them. And how can you say that? Because they're both true. You see, remember I told you, agape, agape comes from someone who knows what is really good for you, not just what you emotively want. Agape comes from someone who has has your best interest, not just your love interest, but your best life interest at hand. And so the guardrails, the guardrails are there not to, not to keep you from experiencing life, but to experience the life you were created to experience. 
And, and so when we talk about God being holy, when we talk about our life being whole, when we talk about the fact that the God of the universe made you and knows you and, and knows everything about you and loves you with a love you can't even begin to comprehend until you experience it, and that that love, that love doesn't base itself in shame and guilt and accomplishment and checking off the list and performance and all that. No, no, this, this, love, this love knows you better than you know yourself. And yet this love wants to protect you. It wants to provide you with the guardrails. You see, wrath, the wrath of God, in both the Greek and the Hebrew, which is behind the Greek, they, 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 they both say the same thing. Wrath isn't about an angry, vindictive God, although it sounds like it. Because when we think of wrath, we think of somebody who's like totally lost it, okay? Their emotions are out of control. No, no, see, the wrath of God, the, the wrath of God comes from a place of what in the, in the Greek language is called pathos or pathos, rather than a place of passion. You see, the, the, the God of Jesus, the one that John the Baptist is talking about to his disciples, it comes from this place of pathos. Now, now what, does, what does that mean? Well, listen to this definition of pathos. I, I, I love this definition. For those of you who take notes, I'm going to read it really slowly so you can write it down because it's not anywhere on the screens. It's not in the app. But I want you to hear this definition of pathos. See, that's an act formed with care and intention. It's the result of determination and decision. So when we say that, that there is the wrath of God for those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, it's not that God's angry and vindictive. It's that God knows what's best for them. And that God has, has with care and intention, created these guidelines so that when we live in the way he created us to live, we experience more than we will experience if we just live to our own levels. And he does that because he's determined and, and he's made a decision to sacrifice himself for us. Hear that again. Pathos or pathos is an act. It's not a thought. It's an act formed with care and intention. The result of determination and decision. But passion, passion is an emotional convulsion and loss of self-control. See, that's, that's why God's not just an angry, vindictive God who's out of control. He's a God who has made a decision to love you. He's a God who, who won't be pushed around. He's not a pushover but he loves you. Now, some of you know, I have a 14-month-old granddaughter. We're celebrating her right now because she's walking. And I have to tell you, if you're a parent or grandparent and your child or grandchild begins to walk, the entire world changes. I've kind of forgotten this. It's been a long time since my boys were little, 
since my nieces and nephews, who were the first people that I watched go through this. Because my wife and I were married for seven years before God blessed us with our first child. They told us we couldn't have any, so I canceled our maternity insurance. My wife got pregnant. Kind of funny how that worked. For years, people who struggled with infertility would say, hey, pastor, what happened for you? I said, oh, did all the tests, did all the shots, did all that, that kind of stuff. He had nothing helped until I canceled the maternity insurance. That worked, okay? They're like, we're not going down that path. I'm like, okay. But, but I'd seen this in my nieces and my nephews, then I saw, and, and I saw it in my, in, my, in my sons. And now I'm seeing it in my granddaughter. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that place where once you discover your mobility, once you discover that you can move around, once you discover your freedom, then suddenly things that used to be out of your reach are suddenly in your reach. Uh, it, with my nephew, uh, who's, who's a great guy, he's an engineer, lives out in St. Louis, Missouri. He's a graduate of Washington University out there. And, and, and when John was little, they called him Big Bad John. And at Christmas time, Big Bad John was caught up in this small toddler body. But Big Bad John was, would always, he knew exactly where Grandma kept the best Christmas ornaments. And he would toddle his way right over to them and grab them. And every time we would say, John, stop! He'd stop and sit there and wait and watch until all the adults got busy. Then he would go for it every time. You know what happened the other day at my house with my toddler granddaughter? She went toddling over toward an area where my wife had some things. Now, we've removed all the really dangerous and really breakable things, except, you know what? You can't take down the electrical outlets. So here goes my 14-month-old grandbaby toddling over toward the electrical outlets. And I'm like, don't touch that. And she, she did this. She stopped, she looked at me, and smiled. Because she knows when she smiles at G. Paul, it's all over right there. She gets anything she wants, right? Yeah, no. Because then after the smile, she turned and went right back toward the electrical outlet, to which I'm coming across the room. Ah! Don't touch that! Now, here's the deal. What kind of parent or grandparent would I be if I sat there and said, yeah, just go ahead. You know, lick your fingers, stick them in the socket. It's okay. I mean, you're going to learn, right? After the shock, you'll never do that again, you know. I wouldn't be, I mean, first of all, my daughter-in-law and my son would never let that baby stay at my house again. Ever. And I probably wouldn't deserve that. But can I tell you something? What kind of God in heaven looks down at his children? Children he knows, children he loves, children he made, children he created from nothing and says, hey, just go ahead and knock yourself out. I'll be here to clean you up. See, that's what, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6, in verses 1 and verses 2. When throughout Romans chapter 5, he's been talking about the relationship of righteousness and sin and, and the sinfulness of humanity and who Jesus was and the fact that he came to redeem us. And, and then he says, but you know what? There's enough grace for all of our sin. There's enough grace for everything that takes place. And then at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, he said, so, so here's the deal. Should we just keep sinning so that there'd be more and more grace that would abound? And the English translation in most of your Bible says, 
by no means. But can I tell you, that's a really, really lame translation. The actual Greek language goes something like this. Should we then keep, should we then keep sinning so that there'd be more and more grace because we've sinned more and more? Hell no! Now, some of you just got offended that I said that in church. In fact, some of you online just turned it off, all right? But the reality is, it's with that kind of vim and vigor that the Apostle Paul is saying to us, hey, look, sin eats you up. Sin breaks you down. You've been given the guardrails. You've been given the opportunity. You've been, you've been given what God wants you to have through his son, Jesus Christ. God is not a pushover. And if you don't believe in what God has given you in Jesus Christ, then you're choosing for yourself, as we talked last week, you're choosing for yourself to live this life. And you need to know that your, your heavenly father has determined, he has, he's made it an important thing. He's not just emotionally convulsing because you rebelled. No, no, he's intentionally with determination. He's decided that you should that you should have these guardrails and your life should be treated in this way so that you can experience wholeness, you can experience holiness. And with all the emotion he can manage, he says, don't ever do that. Don't just treat the redemption of Jesus, the saving blood of Jesus, don't, don't treat that as common and turn and smile at God and go right back to what you're doing. Because you see, you've, you've got a heavenly father who cares enough about you to function from a place of pathos, of determination, of care, of conviction, instead of just emotionally reacting to you. But there's one more thing you need to know about this holy God who's not a pushover and who functions out of that kind of pathos for you. Um, you see, he, he really does love you. And he wants what's best for you. And he will put up with stuff from you. But he will not change truth. One day Jesus was teaching. Mark records the story for us. And this scribe, this religious leader, came up to Jesus. And he asked a question. Look at it. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them, Jesus answered the crowd well. He asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is like it, it, it this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe, I love this part of the story. I mean, this guy's talking to the son of God. He's a scribe. He's a religious guy. But he thinks he's talking to a Jewish carpenter. So he says to Jesus, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that God is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I love that. If he knew who he was talking to, I think he'd have just shut up. All right? 
but because he thought he was talking to a man, he said what he said. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Because Jesus looked at him and said, hey, look, there's plan. These are the ways that God wants us to live out his holiness. And this God who's not a pushover, who functions from his pathos rather than his passion, is also a God who invites you into purity in your life through a relationship with Jesus. And that invitation is not one where you get a list and say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and I'm a good girl. Or I'm going to do this and this and this and this and I'm a good boy. I'm going to do this and this and this and I'm a successful man. I'm going to do this and this and this and this and I'm a successful woman. No, no. It's a relationship where this pathos of God becomes the pathos of your life. Where the strength of the guardrails provides a strength for your life. And your heavenly father, your heavenly father loves you so much he wants to give that to you. Years ago, when my oldest son was in seventh grade, the church board here was very gracious and they allowed me to help coach a, a seventh grade football team at Eastside Middle School here in the city. Um, they knew of my love for athletics, my love for my son. And uh, so I, I took every afternoon that fall and went over and helped coach. And that bunch of seventh grade football players had a great season. They, they quote, won the city championship, which means they beat Southside and they beat Northside. All right? Two games, you're champions, right? And they got T-shirts and everything for it. It was a great year. Never forget it. Enjoyed it tremendously. But after the last game, we're riding home from Newcastle in a bus, school bus. You ever been in a school bus with... I don't know, 35, 40 smelly 7th grade boys. All their football equipment after a rainy night. The smell is memorable. And the conversation was more memorable. Because as we're coming home from that ball game, there's a group of kids sitting around me, a group of boys, and, and they're talking about the next year. And one of them leans across the bench and says to me, Hey, coach, are you going to coach next year when we're in 8th grade? I said, well, now that depends on my son, Kyle. Kyle's your son? Guys, we've been doing this for several months now. I said, yes. We never knew he was your son. I said, well, you know, we didn't want you to think he was getting any favoritism because his dad was one of the assistant coaches. And, you know, we just wanted him to earn his own way through. And, and so, and, and they're sitting there. And this one young man, I'll never forget it. His name is Jamal. Jamal great young man, ended up actually playing college football on a scholarship, but in the seventh grade, he was just the biggest and the strongest of all the kids, and Jamal looks over at me and goes, coach, Kyle is your son? You were meaner to him than you were all the rest of us. I can't believe he's your kid, and you treated him like that. And I said, well, we just, we wanted him to be like everybody else. And he said, man. And there was this little guy who had been listening to the whole conversation. And he goes, wow. 
I wish I had a dad who's mean to me. And Jamal sat there for a minute and went, yeah, at least you'd know he cared. I've never forgotten that. And sometimes when I have people ask me, Pastor, why, why are there guardrails? Why are there boundaries? Why are there things about the Christian life that, that the church has taught for years from the Scriptures? Why can't we just like do what we want to do? I mean, we're free in Christ. Can't we just be free in Christ? I'm, I'm like James Bryan Smith. I want to say, you know what? God is loving, and God is good, and God is generous, and God is trustworthy. He is good. He delights in you, and you can trust him. But because he delights in you, he's put these boundaries in place. Because he delights in you, he's invited you into a relationship. And here's the cool part. If you'll let him, those, those things will make you holy like he's holy will make you W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, like he is holy. In 1 Peter, we find this passage. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This morning, I just want to ask you, is the God you serve the God of Jesus, who's not a pushover, who doesn't just work out of his passions, angry and vindictive, but, but works from a, a place of determined concern and care for you. Because he is holy, and he's inviting you to be holy too.